Hello, you are listening to Maghrib and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on June 11, 2021, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Delena Sobhani. Delena Sobhani received her BSFS in International Political Economy from Georgetown University in 2018. After working as a data analyst for two years, Dana pursued a Fulbright grant to study the nuanced impacts of gender quotas in Morocco. She has worked with the Ibn Zahur University in Agadir and the National Democratic Institute in Rabat to examine the effects of reserve seats in Moroccan legislatures on women's representation. Delena, welcome to the American Legation. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. And, and welcome to Tangier, of course. <laughs> um, Delena, maybe we could begin with some definitions. Um, what exactly are gender quotas and how have they been applied in Morocco? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, a problem that pretty much every country in the world has is that women are critically underrepresented in politics. In national parliaments, the global average of seats held by women is only 25%, even though women can a little over 50% yeah. of the global population. So gender quotas are an electoral mechanism designed to address this balance by increasing women's political participation and representation. And to give you a quick history about gender quotas, quotas for women existed in various forms in several communist countries, actually, in the 20th century, but they really got their start in democracies around the 1970s, when some Norwegian political parties decided to make sure that a certain percentage of their candidates were women. So since then, um, gender quotas have really taken off, and many countries have adopted many different kinds of gender quotas, mm -hmm. which can be broadly sorted into two main categories. The first category is reserved seats, which set aside a proportion of spots in a legislature for women, thereby guaranteeing that a certain number of women will for sure be elected. The second category are candidate quotas, which compel political parties to ensure that a certain share of their candidates will be women. Candidate quotas can be mandatory, either imposed by the Constitution or through electoral laws, or they may be adopted by political parties voluntarily. In Morocco, actually, both voluntary political party quotas and reserved seats have been used to try to bolster women's political inclusion. I mean, I can give you just a brief history about the use of gender quotas in Morocco specifically. So Moroccan activists started advocating for gender quotas in the 1990s. Um, in 1993, Morocco ratified the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, following an extensive campaign by women's organizations in Morocco. Moroccan activists then used this mandate established by CEDAW as leverage to start pushing for gender quotas. In the late 1990s, they lobbied political parties themselves to adopt a voluntary party quota, which was somewhat successful, and a few parties did end up reserving 10 to 20 percent of their parties to be women. And then women activists in Morocco continued to lobby for legislated quotas that would provide a legally enforceable mechanism to ensure that political parties comply with quotas. But the Supreme Court in Morocco actually found legislated quotas unconstitutional. So in the 2002 national elections, 
30 seats in the House of Representatives were elected through this national list. And in order to kind of circumvent this issue about constitutionality, all the political parties voluntarily made um, an honorary agreement to reserve those 30 seats for women and only ran women for those seats. And a couple years later, quotas were implemented at the local level. I think 12% of seats in local councils were reserved for women, which resulted in a substantial increase from the 2003 local elections when women won, you know, less than 1% of seats. And then kind of the next phase of gender quotas in Morocco was ushered in by the February 20th movement. Article 19 of the revised July 2011 constitution stipulates that, you know, men and women are entitled to equal political rights. And following this constitutional reform, organic laws kind of institutionalized and expanded quotas at both the national level and the local level. So at the national level, 60 seats are reserved for women and 30 seats were, you know, reserved for Shabbat or people under 40. And then in 2015, there were several organic laws that institutionalized and expanded the local gender quotas. And so the most recent update that has been pretty interesting to follow happened this past March when the quota system for the House of Representatives changed ahead of the upcoming 2021 elections. So now there's no longer, you know, this divided national constituency for women of 60 seats and 30 seats for youth. And instead, they're kind of being merged together to just 90 seats. And instead of being a national constituency, they're going to be voted along kind of the regional constituencies that the regular election takes place in. So it'll be really interesting to see how this revised quota system affects the gendered makeup of the new House of Representatives. And how did you get interested in the topic itself of gender quotas? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I'm really interested in the question of this like democratic deficit in terms of this gendered imbalance in politics. And so I found gender quotas to be a particularly fascinating legal mechanism to address this issue because they're one of the fastest growing legal trends spreading to different regions of the world and different political contexts, but their effects are still uncertain and contested. Um, you know, prior to the 1970s, as I mentioned, they weren't really that, you know, widely used. Only five countries in the world had adopted them. But by the early 2010s, more than 100 countries had adopted gender quotas. On the African continent alone, this number of countries jumped from three to 37 between 1990 and 2015. Okay. So studies have demonstrated that a well-designed quota system is effective in increasing the number of women in government. That's what's known as descriptive representation. But the existing literature on gender quotas doesn't have a clear answer for whether gender quotas lead to women's interests being included in legislative right. agendas, what's known as substantive representation. So my research focuses on this idea of substantive representation, whether Morocco's national and local gender quotas have influenced the representation of women's policy preferences and priorities. I got to ask this question since you mentioned women's interests. Do you ever run into people who make try to make the argument that somehow gender quotas might be discriminatory against men? Yes, I have seen this argument plenty in my research. And I don't think that argument that gender quotas are discriminatory towards men is valid at all. Women have historically been underrepresented at basically all levels of government, and this democratic deficit is due to the fact that there are very real structural obstacles women face to holding public office and accessing positions with public decision-making power. These barriers may result from sociocultural norms associated with gender identity. For example, women's household responsibilities may limit their educational attainment and free time, um, which prevents women from 
becoming informed active citizens. These barriers can also be financial since it takes significant resources to finance a campaign. Mm -hmm. And women are much less likely to be financially independent or have decision-making power about how to use their family's finances. So these are the kinds of barriers that prevent women from participating in politics and women are therefore absent from important decisions that shape their reality. And so the theory behind gender quotas is that quotas can create a critical mass of women in legislatures, creating opportunities for them to form coalitions that would dismantle these barriers so that hopefully gender quotas can fast track women's empowerment. Let's switch to here, to Morocco. Um, What have you been finding in your research here in Morocco regarding gender quotas? What are your findings? Are you learning new things, new discoveries? Yes, definitely. Um, So I haven't come to a tidy, definitive conclusion, um, but with a topic as nuanced as gender quotas, I suppose that's to be expected. Um, What I have heard in virtually all of my interviews is that the gender quotas in Morocco have been a critical first step to meaningfully expanding women's political representation here. Um, One member of parliament noted that the quotas have helped change sociocultural biases against women leaders. Thanks to gender quotas, women representatives don't really seem as out of place in government. And in fact, some surveys have found that Moroccans find women representatives to be more trustworthy and hardworking than their male counterparts. But the road to women's political empowerment is quite long. Many interviewees have pointed out that the legal infrastructure is here to support women in politics. You know, Morocco has ratified the Convention on Eliminating Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. The Constitution asserts that women and men should enjoy equal political rights. And, you know, the government has implemented these gender quotas to try to achieve parity. These legal reforms, however, have yet to transform the political landscape into an accessible realm for women. And so kind of what my research is pointing to is that it looks like there may be a lag between the implementation of a quota system and the realization of equity, you know, which would be the point when these quotas become obsolete and you don't need them right. anymore. They've accomplished their job. So I think it would be really interesting for future research to study whether countries that have had gender quotas in place for several decades decades have experienced a meaningful change in women's substantive representation. I think it's fascinating that you mentioned that you've seen some surveys that indicate a belief that the level of trust mm-hmm. in women legislators or, or women members of local governments is higher. I wonder if in your contacts with women representatives, did you have a chance to talk to them or, or see how they dealt with constituency services? I'm thinking maybe that's the reason that trust might be higher. Definitely. Can... So I have encountered that um, in a couple of my interviews. In fact, um, in an interview with a councilwoman, she mentioned that in her town, she had noticed a difference with the adoption of the gender quotas of women becoming more comfortable going to the town council, either to speak to women representatives or just for things as simple as paperwork. So the yeah. fact that, you know, women were present at the town council made that um, a much more comfortable space for women constituents. And then another representative that I spoke with, who is also a town councilwoman, mentioned that her main uh, issue area was education. And so she spoke with a lot of the headmasters at the schools in the town. 
and worked with the kind of local branch of the Ministry of Education to kind of workshop what were the most pressing needs for those schools and come up with a budget to help them build more green spaces and kind of redo the facilities to meet the needs of the students. Um, and then after those needs were met, she um, kind of created this inter-school fair where a bunch of schools came together and put on programming, mm -hmm. the arts, the sciences. And so that is kind of an example of a councilwoman becoming very, very engaged with, with her constituents to meet their needs. And it's great that both examples you give are examples of women in local government, because yes. I think when I think of gender quotas, I tend to think of parliaments, but you've done research both at national level and at local level. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's one of actually the reasons I was so excited to come to Morocco to look at gender quotas is that following the February 20 movement in 2011, Morocco has institutionalized and expanded gender quotas at the national, but also subnational local levels. So it's been really fascinating to see those effects kind of operating in, in those different realms. With real hands-on impact. Yes, exactly. That's great. We do want to ask you about the parliament and stuff. What are your initial findings vis-a-vis -vis the introduction of gender quotas in the parliament? Mm, in the parliament specifically. So... Just I can guess say, in the parliament specifically, I've heard about a committee that was created recently for women representatives, mm. the parity committee. There has been movement of women representatives coming together across parties to work together on parity issues. I have, however, heard the critique that siloing women under this category of women's interest actually may detract from the power of women representatives, right? If they're being put on this parity committee, perhaps um, they then don't have the bandwidth to be engaging with other really important issues. And especially since women's interests just in general tend to be kind of undervalued and not taken as seriously, mm -hmm. their advocacy and their work in that realm kind of leads to their power as a representative being diminished in contrast to, for example, if they were on the committee for like infrastructure or foreign relations, for or example. Or something like that. I was going to ask you if you've been following any debates or you're looking forward to following any ongoing debates, anticipated debates, I should say, in parliament where you think that some of the women representatives you've already been in touch with or you're tracking are playing or might be playing leadership roles. I was thinking just for example, this debate on Article 490 that's been in the news a lot lately, but there are any issues. They don't necessarily, like you said, they don't have to be issues related to gender specifically. Right. Yeah. So I have started following this issue around Article 490, which is in the penal code and kind of is there to prosecute extramarital relations. And, you know, this has recently become a hot topic in Morocco. And I think leading up to the 2021 elections, you may see some representatives in parliament and some political parties, you know, try to take a stance. But I think my hypothesis would be that you wouldn't really see kind of a trend where a lot of women representatives are against kind of reforming and repealing Article 490 and a lot of men are in favor of keeping it. Right. I think, you know, that kind of gender divide is a little bit more complicated and might fall more along uh, political party lines. Political parties as opposed to gender specifically. Gender specifically. Yeah. With your research, we've been talking about your contacts with local government representatives and, and parliamentarians, but I noticed that you have a strong background in data analysis. And I am imagining that perhaps that came in very handy having to conduct your academic research in times of 
the pandemic. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your research approach, specifically how it included data analysis, but also any adjustments you had to make or successes you were able to accomplish despite the pandemic? Yes, definitely. Thanks. So while I've been here, I've used a mixed methods approach to explore my research question. Um, in order to get a sense of people's policy preferences in Morocco, I've leveraged my experience in data analytics to investigate publicly available survey data about Moroccans' policy preferences. And I'm in the process of analyzing this data to identify exactly what Moroccan women's priorities are and how they may differ from their male counterparts. And in conjunction with this quantitative analysis, I'm examining primary sources such as legislation, government publications, news articles, as well as secondary sources, you know, mainly academic articles that comprise the gender quota literature. And finally, I've been conducting interviews with various experts and practitioners in the field of women's political representation. Mm -hmm. So far, I've interviewed Moroccan activists, academics, members of parliament, town council members about their perspectives on gender quotas. And I've also been fortunate enough to attend a couple of conferences about women's political participation, which has been super helpful in seeing how civil society is engaging with really? this topic in right now. Rabat? In and Agadir, actually. Agadir, great. Yes, yes. The first four months of my grant, I was in Agadir, and I actually attended two conferences there about kind of local political participation, which was was very cool. But to answer your question about how the pandemic has inspired me to be more flexible with my research approach, it certainly, especially when I first arrived, was difficult to kind of meet people in person and kind of develop research contacts through just like kind of natural organic meetings. And so I found that it's taken a little bit longer to kind of develop those kinds of connections that have led to to my interviews. So the data analysis component has been very helpful for me to mm -hmm. kind of hit the ground running uh, with the research, even, you know, despite the constraints of the pandemic. And did you make the decision to concentrate on data analysis before you applied for the grant? Or was it a decision that you made during the pauses when yeah. researchers we're waiting to be able to travel and things like that. So at Georgetown, my major was international political economy. And a big part of that major was developing quantitative research skills. And mm -hmm. then after graduating, I did statistical analysis kind of for my job. So I was very comfortable exploring research questions using quantitative methods. Okay. And so when I originally wrote my um, research proposal for Fulbright, um, I had always anticipated kind of doing a mixed methods approach. But during the pandemic, I think I, especially at the beginning of my research, concentrated much more heavily on that data analysis component rather than the qualitative interviews. Perhaps we can invite you back to give a workshop on using research and data, <laughs> yes, data analysis methodology. It's extremely useful, as you said, and it's great having you here to talk about your research. But what's next for you? What What are you looking forward to? You've got more, you still got time here in Morocco, so you're going to be doing yes, some more research. Definitely. And then your post of Fulbright life? Have you been making some plans for those? I have actually. So this fall, I'm starting law school where I'll continue to explore the question that originally motivated my Fulbright research, which is, you know, what legal mechanisms are available to effectively build more inclusive, equitable societies. In both my senior thesis at Georgetown and my Fulbright research, I've attempted to critically examine legal mechanisms that attempt to empower women and try to understand how these mechanisms truly operate on the ground. And I'm looking forward to building on this research interest in law school and eventually pursuing a career focused on creating legal systems that protect and empower everyone. 
That's great. And I hope your future research brings you back to Morocco and, and to our part of the world and to Tangier, of course. Yes, definitely to Tangier. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And you're always welcome to come back. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.